Modern orthopedics is a rapidly evolving and exciting field that continues to push the boundaries of what is possible with treatment. Advances in technology, including minimally invasive surgical techniques and the use of robotics, have revolutionized the field of orthopedics, allowing for patients to quickly begin the rehabilitation process and can significantly improve the outcomes of orthopedic procedures. Here is your behind-the-scenes pass to one of the most well-established orthopedic practices in the DFW area. Welcome back to Modern Orthopedics. Today I'm here with Dr. Umar Bernie, one of the founding partners of Orthopedic Specialists of Dallas. And we are here to touch on a few topics regarding the healthcare system, non-for-profits, and a little bit about his uh, specialty with hip arthroscopies. So Dr. Bernie, why don't you start and tell us a little bit about yourself? Thank you. Thanks for having me on the show. As you said, I started this practice um, in 2008. Prior to that, obviously, primarily was an orthopedic training. I practiced with another group for about a year. My training essentially is, um, so I did my residency at LSU. Uh, and then after that, I did a fellowship in what at the time was basically a joint reconstruction fellowship at the University of Texas in Houston. And uh, after that, I came out here, started a in private practice with a small group and then transitioned to, to start Orthopedic Specialists of Dallas, which, as you know, has quickly grown and uh, we've sort of morphed into a mid-sized group. Been very fortunate along the way uh, to interact with um, folks like yourself and many other professionals that have made this a really rewarding path. So that's a little bit about me. I think my pride and joy lies in you know beautiful family, a wife who's an educator, three kids, and my kids are all three are teenagers, so I'm a busy father. Awesome. Well, thank you. So I will just get started. I want to put you on the hot seat a little bit. It's you've been in the community since 2008, essentially, and you've been in healthcare, you know, for many years. What do you see has been the most dramatic change in healthcare in the last 15, 17 years you've been in practice? You know, obviously, there's various facets to that answer. Obviously, technology is constantly involved. Things that we're doing in the operating room today are, by and large, not the same as far as what they were when I came out of training. Um, some of the basics, obviously, the principles are a lot of them are the same, but technology has improved. Instrumentation has improved. And so things are definitely different um, from a technology perspective. When we first came out, um, you know, practically I came from the generation that still had pagers on our waistlines, right? Today, many of us don't know what a pager is. Um, so technology has evolved. And so the same format has occurred both in our lives here in the clinic. As you know, we've recently improved on our electronic health record system here in the office. Um, and our utilization of it has gone up significantly in our lives. Um, similarly, in the operating room, the same has happened. So I would say if I had to point to one big change in my professional career, it's been the impact of technology in our, in our lives. Do you feel like a, as a senior member of this practice that your technique in the operating room has had to change to keep up with technology to treat patients? Yeah, certainly. Obviously, I've had to continuously evolve that. But I think, and in fact, I was talking to somebody about this last night. One of the benefits of 
the other stuff I do, as you know, and we'll get to that in this show, which is charity work and international mission work, is that I have the ability to sort of merge a lot of the technology with just some of the age old techniques, many of which I have to resort to when I'm on international mission trips, because as you can imagine, those are fairly rudimentary settings. Yes, the answer to your question is definitely I have had to evolve. But in that evolution, I've really even further strengthened some of my basic principles. Um, And so it's been really interesting. Both have grown. Not only have my newer technology skill sets improved, but also similarly stuff that has been in orthopedics for 50 years has also improved. Um, And I think overall it's made me a better, better surgeon. When you say international mission work, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, well, I think the big question in life, as you and I have always talked about, is what is your why, right? What is your why? Um, Why do you do this? Many people think that your why doesn't evolve, but your why evolves as as you get older, and it should. Honestly, if your why is the same as it was when you first came into practice, I think that's, you know, I don't know what to call that, but... Frankly, I don't think it's stagnant, stagnant, stagnant yeah. as a provider and as a, you know, professional. Right. Yeah. And, and then there's always the human aspect of it, of it too. Right. So, you know, my empathy has grown over the years. Um, I take pride in saying that. I think um, I make it a point every day to make sure that empathy has consistently remained because, as you know, burnout is a real issue. We could almost do a show on burnout, um, if you will especially in the healthcare industry, I think that's a very, very important topic. And so for me, maintaining the empathy is, is, well, let me go back to this. Being in medicine involves being empathetic to those that I confront on a daily basis. And if my mission work and my charity work improves on that empathy and continues to provide fuel to that character trait of mine, um, it's well worth it. And that's what I do it for. It's your why. It's my way. It's your purpose. It's my purpose. So do you feel that that makes you a better practitioner in this practice? You know, I know you've heard me say this in many small meetings back when we were a small group and in the larger meetings when we've now um, amazingly grown to over 100 person staff here. uh, I've often told people almost being a little brutally honest that if you don't care for the person you're taking care of, then don't be in it. And so the day you lose the ability to care for the person who just walked in to seek your medical help, um, in my humble opinion, and I know this is a strong statement, that's the day you should hang it up. I mean, you, do you remember my interview? Do you remember what I told you? Uh, I actually don't, but I'd love to be reminded, <laughs> actually. I was like, the, I told you on my interview that if you, the day that you make me jeopardize the quality of care I give yes, patients I is the day I'll that. walk out the door. Yep. And I can say 12 years now, I've not had to compromise patient care, either clinically or administratively. And I will say, you know, we touched on this in a different podcast, but the initiative at OSD is to give back to our local community as well. Um, Obviously, you are able to take it to a greater capacity. And I think when you change people's lives to the capacity that you're able to, it just makes you a more holistic clinician. And so... Yeah. So you and I know a lot about the changes that are coming down the pop- pipeline with healthcare. Do you see any integration for like stateside clinical to international merging? So before I go into that, I want to actually talk about why you and I know so much about healthcare. So I don't know if anybody has interviewed you or highlighted you, but the one thing that I think makes me really proud is you and I are enrolled in the same program. And that's amazing. Which is? 
which is our <laughs> University of Texas at Dallas MBA program. And I think that the fact that we as uh, healthcare professionals are choosing to grow in that space, I think is amazing. Uh, kudos to you. Hats off to you. I know for a fact it's not easy. Um, and uh, it's a lot of uh, sleepless nights when your family's already in bed and waking up early in the morning to get things done before your actual work starts. Um, so kudos to you. Hats off to you. So, um, you did the same thing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but no, thank I, you. I, I no, think, it, I think it takes a lot. It takes does. a lot. And uh, it means a lot to me to have somebody by my side who has taken that initiative. And I know the strength of the program and, and the rigor of the program. And, and it's pretty intense. But going back to your question, do I see an, a merger of international versus community? Actually, I do. I do. So I think we'd have to dive into a little bit of what I experience when I go on my international mar- charity trip. As you know, I'm a board of trustee of an organization called Friends of Indus Hospital, which is the hospital that I um, go and practice at when I go on my Pakistan mission trip. It's an amazing public-private consortium. So at a very, very high level, as you know, in any country in the world, uh, providing health care to the indigent and the impoverished and the um, sort of underbelly of our society, if you will, is the role of good governance, right? Um, a good government provides essentially free health care, if you will, to those that cannot otherwise afford it. Now, this hospital system that I work at provides free health care, right? And so basically they're doing the role of, they're essentially a non-government organization that's playing the role of a government. So in Pakistan, amazingly, the government has realized and sequential governments have realized that, well, you're doing our job. And so what they've done is they've turned over a lot of the public hospitals that were poorly operated and poorly managed. And I know that sounds um, that that should resonate because pretty much even in our own country, our government hospitals, our county hospitals are typically poorly managed, poorly uh, run and are overwhelmed. So the Pakistani government's actually turned over those hospitals to this private consortium which amazingly is a very intriguing concept. And we are describing this as a public-private consortium in healthcare. And we're starting to see that it's spreading around the world because a lot of countries in the world are realizing, you know what, you're doing this better than we are. Why don't you just take this over and do it? And we'll pay you to do it. So what's happening in Pakistan is Indus Hospital System is getting a budget from the government to run its free private hospitals, or sorry, free public hospitals. And you have more than one? We have 15 hospitals in the system today. Okay. And a whole lot of outpatient uh, setting facilities. So we have blood banks, uh, rehab centers, you know, basically mother, baby clinics. There's a humongous amount, and I can't even remember because they typically, they literally grow every day, uh, primary care setups, um, clinics. And uh, so, yeah, I mean, it's grown into what, what is now described as a health network. The largest health network in the country is a free of charge, free healthcare system. And it started out as one, correct? It started out as one in 2007. So you can, mm-hmm. you can imagine how it's grown. Basically, um, it's like wildfire. Can you explain a little bit about how the patients get in the system? Like they just call or sign up? So, so there is a sort of stringent intake process, which basically validates the fact that they would qualify for free health care. 
Um, but once you get into the system, it's like any other system here in Dallas, uh, we have what we call the Parkland system and you get what is called a Parkland card, right? And so once you're enrolled, now you're eligible to utilize any of those source resources within the healthcare system. So similarly, you get an Indus registration card made um, once they've sort of validated and confirmed and verified that you're eligible by virtue of your income levels or, or lack thereof. And then you're an enrolled patient in the system. Like any qualifications, like do they have to be from Pakistan, live in Pakistan? Like, can I go to Pakistan, live there for a year and I can register to get in the system? Yeah, I hope you make some money when you go there <laughs> and then don't enter into the 20% of the bottom of the barrel. But um, yeah, absolutely. So this thing is, I'm glad you asked that question. Um, it is completely blind to religion, person, country, citizenship, race, ethnicity, any of the above. In fact, when I go to Pakistan, as you know, Afghanistan is a country that's neighboring Pakistan has undergone war for almost three decades, if not more, actually four decades now. Um, and so, you know, poverty is, is, is a huge issue there. So in fact, I take care of a lot of people that cross the border from Afghanistan into Pakistan as well. Um, and is it, are the physicians volunteer based or now they, some get paid? No, no, everybody's getting paid. Okay. Um, you know, they may not be getting paid at market rates. And so there is definitely an element of altruism involved in their work, but they're getting paid. Yes. Everybody is a paid employee there. So maybe I should explain. Except, except us, of course. I was gonna yeah. say, <laughs> explain to the audience, you know, what your work is. I mean, you go over there and you do bilateral total knees and total hips. Correct. You do upwards of 100 plus, like in one week span, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I think that nothing does anything justice until you hear the patient speak. And I think that you have some social media that's posted. And um, I wish I remember the gentleman's name, but he's the first one on your video where he just thought that his life was over. Um, he actually said he was going to basically be shot because in his culture, and correct me if I'm wrong, like he's not worth anything because he can't provide for his family. And because of what your team did, he can now provide for his family. And um, I actually was like, I wish I could track him because it's incredible what to you and your team probably seems very small. Like I don't mean to minimize like a total joint replacement, but it not only changed him, but it changed his family and for generations. So if we can reflect on that for a minute, what y'all do in seven to 10 days time is incredible. And if that is a hundred times, you know, now that you have 15 hospitals and physicians that are paid for this, it's um, impacting essentially a, not just a community, but a, a country. So it goes above and beyond that. So this this project, as you know, I started in 2014 and it's grown. And this past year, I took 10 people with me on the trip, six of whom were surgeons. Um, and so it's grown well beyond myself. And the numbers that you quoted are only able to be done with the kind of help that I take. So just to be clear, none of the folks that leave from here from the United States are getting paid to do what they do. The folks locally at the Indus hospital systems there obviously are paid employees of the system. And thank God for that because they are able to facilitate us doing such a high volume and such a large volume in that one week that we're there. So yeah, we go not only with personnel, but one other thing I'd like to highlight is, as you know, I get sponsorship from medical implant and medical device companies here. So somewhere in the tune of about two to two and a half million dollars worth of implants are donated every year to me and our group. And so we actually take them with us this year. We actually had some shipping uh, hurdles. So we actually took 18 suitcases with us of implants and instrumentation 
Um, so we actually go there almost self-sufficient to some extent, obviously reliant on the local folks to arrange for the patients. The story you mentioned is just one of many, as you can imagine. So this project, we've been able to operate on 400 people in the last um, nine years that we've been running. This is our sixth mission trip out of nine years because of COVID. We had to take a, a break with a few. I'll tell you, I think probably the most impactful is the beginning. And, you know, they say that uh, uh, first impressions are lasting impressions. And as much as this gentleman that you just referred to, his life was obviously changed what really resonates with me is the reason I started this. And so maybe I can take a minute to tell you about the one patient that I saw. So actually the project started because I met one of the Indus Hospital orthopedic surgeons here in the United States. He was attending a conference and I was just intrigued on what he was doing. And so him and I got to talking and he said to me, if you're ever visiting Pakistan, come see me. And so I went the next time I was on a family visit I uh, called him up. He invited me to come spend his, the day with him. He was doing various surgeries and he was in clinic. And so I went down to clinic with him. And, um, you know, first off, I'll say that the clinic that he saw, I, I think I have a busy day today. I see, I'm seeing upwards of 50 patients. Um, he had over 100 patients on his schedule that day. Waiting room was crazy. People are getting shuttled in and out. Um, and the system there is that the doctor basically sits in a room and there's nurses that bring patients in and out of that room um, and the doctor evaluates you and you literally get maybe a minute or a minute and a half to be evaluated, talked to and uh, treatment and diagnosis, diagnosis and treatment plan determined for you. Anyways, this youngest, youngish individual, and I say young because I'm in my 40s now, so he was in his 40s. He comes in limping with a big stick in his hand and uh, they pop up his x-rays and I tell you, Lauren, I mean, this guy had probably one of the worst hips I've seen in my career. In his 40s. In his 40s, mid 40s. Um, and so obviously the x-ray goes up, very little examination has to be done, problems very obvious, he needs a hip replacement. Um, my friend, Dr. Mansour, looks over to his residents and fellows and says, put him on the schedule for hip. Now, mind you, this was 2014. And uh, sure enough, they open up this big black register and they jot down his name and uh, they give him a date. And the date they gave him is for 2024 for hip replacement. This guy basically takes his little slip of paper that says, come back in 2024. And just as fast as he was shuttled in, a bunch of nurses grab him, help him and get him out of there. And I know this has happened to you in your life before, but there's eye contact. Maybe you married the guy who made eye contact with you. This gentleman made eye contact with me and he literally melted me with his eyes. I think he realized what he had done to me because I literally couldn't take it. I got up, jumped out of my chair. I was, remember, the visiting professor. The world was revolving around me that day. I was the visiting professor from the United States. And I literally ran out after him. And as he's being scurried out of there, I went to him and he looked at me. He turned around and he said, I'm the father of four daughters. I'm an electrician. What am I going to do for 10 years? And that was the day I decided that this isn't going to continue, not on my watch. And so I came back to the United States and I talked to various companies and I told them and I pleaded with them. And as you know, I traveled around this country to various device company headquarters, a lot of it telling them this story. Um, you know, the rest is history. Um, that gentleman actually got his hip replaced by me the next year. Um, so he did not have to wait 10 years. He waited eight months. 
And um, those are the successes. And that's what keeps me going and helps me wake up every morning and get out of bed. So do you feel like you make the same impact here? I do. Um, Honestly, like I told you before, the day that I lose my empathy for the patients that I see on a day-to-day basis is the day I'm probably going to hang it up. So right there, I think you just got my retirement plan. (laughs) (laughs) Never. You're never going to retire. It's good. Uh, Good for OSD and good for the community. Um, So do you believe that the American healthcare system has, is in the same situation? Yes. Do you believe you can change that? I think the intricacies of it are different. I think one thing that comes out of our conversation today is the realization aspect of it, right? I mean, like I said to you, the governments over there have realized what the problems are. Now, obviously, healthcare is less so commercialized there than it is here. And, you know, the numbers aren't as large as they are here. So if we want to pivot to what's happening in our backyard, as you know, you know, we're, we're a um, seven, almost going on $7 trillion healthcare economy in this country. That's almost 20% of our GDP, 18 to 20% of our GDP. And so there's a big, big element of commercialization. And if I may be so daring as to say, in that process of commercialization, we've done two things. We've forgotten about the heart in medicine. Going back to your earlier question about one of the things I've noticed has changed yeah, absolutely. I think that people coming into healthcare today have forgotten why they came into healthcare. And then number two, I think we've sort of left a lot of people behind. You know, as I said to you earlier, my wife's an educator, and I know there's this big mantra in education that uh, was introduced by one of our former presidents, no child left behind. What about no patient left behind? That hasn't happened here. Well said. Yeah. So how are we going to change healthcare? Yeah, no, I think um, as you and I have studied extensively in the last few years, you know, I think alternative payment models have to come. I think fee-for-service, with all due respect, has had a corrupting element on our healthcare. Not just at the patient level, but at the provider level as well. Correct. Yes, very much so, because we've been volume-driven. It's not all our fault. We've, we've had to constantly run harder and faster to be able to achieve you know, what, what we feel like is a validity of our, of of our, uh, you know, of our value, right? So, I mean, obviously as a physician, I have a certain value and for me to maintain my value, um, I've had to provide more care and more care and more care. And that, that paradigm hasn't changed actually in the last 20 years that I've been in orthopedics. Um, So, so we've got to have a shift away from being volume-driven individuals to being quality-based individuals. And when that comes through, I think, with quality, that will restore, in my mind, a little bit of the empathy, the heart, and the soul of, of, of healthcare. Because now, as opposed to seeing each and every individual as another cha-ching, you know, another number, another statistic we will be more incentivized and driven uh, to, to, to really look at what are we giving them and how are we changing their life. And I think on a very high level, because I mean, obviously people in the audience don't understand that the fee-for-service model is what we've had in healthcare, which is why, unfortunately, for providers, they've had to see more patients in less time to essentially financially perform at the same level they did 10 years ago, which in return, the patient experience suffers, right? We've seen your volume 
essentially probably has not changed dramatically in the last 10 years. Um, but, but your, but your income has exactly on a downward trajectory. Exactly. And right. so fee for service tends to make you work harder. Um, you tend to, you try to instill that compassion, but when patients are like, you're in and out at X amount of time, as a provider, you're like, well, I have to because I have to see this many patients a day in yeah. order to keep the lights on, essentially, Absolutely. and have a staff to help you in the operating room or at the front of the office. And so I think with value-based healthcare, it pivots us to think of the outcomes with patients and where we can provide a level of service with the less volume and essentially the patients have better outcomes is kind of what we vision healthcare to be in the future, where it becomes provider and patient centric, where the providers can really truly enjoy medicine, you oh. know, and give the patients what they need and ultimately have better outcomes. So there's a win on both sides. Yeah, I know. Like you, you know, I've studied the triple aim theory, right? Um, and what you've just mentioned is basically the first of the triple aims is the patient experience has to improve. And you're absolutely correct. I mean, sometimes going back to this whole concept that I try to espouse here in this office, which is take care of every patient as if it's your mother. Honestly, some of the, some of the steps that I even take occasionally uh, really make me judge and doubt whether I provided the same care I would want my mother to, to, to achieve because of timing, because of stress of, and, uh, of, of timing and pressure to be able to move patients through, unfortunately. And as you said, it's basically a very volume-centric game right now because it's a charge per patient times the number of patients. And if anybody in healthcare today denies that that's not their equation, I would challenge them. Um, so you're absolutely right. I think value-based care will hopefully, if we can get all of the logistics of how we're going to do it, uh, um, lined up and correct. Uh, hopefully, it will it, it will change that because now we're going to be rewarded for our impact on the patient, and we're going to be reimbursed accordingly. Um, so I'm really looking forward to that. It's my only hope in in medicine as I see it. Bold statement. I agree. I was going to say that's my why. Yeah. I think that I your why has to be bigger than yourself and bigger than your community, and that if you can do something different to change the trajectory of healthcare in America, it's there's a quote that says, if your dream, if people don't call you crazy for your dreams, your dream's not big enough. Right. And so I think that often people are like that you're one person. And I said, it just takes one person to create a ripple. And it doesn't mean that in our lifetime, we might see the fruits of our labor, but it's kind of the legacy you leave for yeah. the people that you will benefit. Yeah, they say a bunch of raindrops come together, form a lake. You know what I mean? So I know you and I have talked about this. You never get intimidated by the task at hand, right? I mean, you keep scratching at it and scratching at it and eventually you know every wall cracks and so um you know that's the motive i mean like you said we may or may not see this happen in our lifetime but that is not an excuse not to try um and so i think step one is obviously you and i have agreed to educate ourselves on it and so that's what we're doing but you know honestly i feel strongly that you know in our practice we should take on some shared risks and you and i have talked about you know contracting differently with the pairs um, and being on the forefront of it. And I've always believed that, you know, you, we can be a model uh, for society. You should be a model. I preach that to my kids. Be, be ambassadors for your, for your family, for your, for your faith, for your, you know. So, so the same is true for us here. Um, you know, it, it may not be that we have all the correct answers, but sometimes you just have to jump in both feet. And, you know, if you can achieve success, then other people tend to follow. Agreed. 
creates a ripple. Yep. If I can do one more pivot. Um, I think kind of what we've learned a little bit is how payers um, hold you to the fire. And if we can talk about your hip arthroscopies and your hip labral repairs, because I know that we've learned the hard way that um, the payers expect certain things from you as a provider that sometimes isn't the best utilization of healthcare dollars. Um, So they, you have to, let's say, evaluate a patient like myself, identify that I have a hip labral tear. And instead of going straight into the OR, because you know, I'm a 40 something year old woman that needs this procedure to get back to running. You are conservatively treating me for, let's say six weeks. I get an MRI, I get an injection, I get physical therapy. More like six months. (laughs) And we're using healthcare dollars that essentially could have been saved. And so, um, what I want you to talk about is just, I think that the fact that you do these procedures is um, not very well known. I want people to understand that some of the clinical decisions you have to make are from the standpoint of a payer, from a system perspective, but that this is a procedure that you perform well and you have good outcomes with. And um, you do something where you repair the labrum, but then you also use a cadaver. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a pretty broad topic. Um, so hip arthroscopy, <laughs> as you know, is a relatively new field in medicine and orthopedics, right? Um, and we're still evolving significantly, um, both in terms of techniques, instrumentation. When I actually started doing this um, in 2009, 2010 now, really, honestly, it was very, very rudimentary, uh, our understanding of the pathology, but also the equipment and technology I had available to to achieve what I wanted to achieve with the patient. So just at a very high level, I think, you know, people need to understand what the hip labrum is. It's a little ring of soft tissue that is attached inside our hip. And it's not uncommon on in athletic individuals and those that are non-athletic as part of a degenerative process that they suffer hip labral tears. Um, so, you know, the fact is, it's a very painful um, pathology uh, for those that have suffered it. it, it it's it's um, debilitating. And as you just alluded to, it can really, really take you away from things you love to do, whether that's living an active lifestyle or even in some cases, just basically being able to work. Um, so I took it upon myself, to be honest with you, to teach myself hip arthroscopy and of the, over the years sort of evolved my own uh, techniques and have perfected a lot of it. In that process, what I realized is that, like the meniscus, there's parts of the hip labrum that don't heal, irrespective of how much you reattach them to to the socket. And so, consequently, the quality of the tissue, despite your attempts at repairing it, often doesn't heal. And uh, because of that, I have in the last three years starting to starting started to do what I call the hip labral augmentation technique in which I use cadaver tissue to augment a person's native labrum. So I don't remove their own labrum. Uh, We actually preserve as much of their own labrum and their own native anatomy. But essentially at the heart of it, the idea is that their own labrum was deficient for whatever reason, and there's many reasons for that, and so consequently suffered an injury. Right. It wasn't able to withstand the forces that your running was putting on it, for example. And so consequently, you suffered an injury and a tear. If I was to just go back and reapproximate and repair the same labrum, then obviously logic prevailing, um, it's probably going to tear again. And we actually clinically did see that. Um, so the whole augmentation component of it with the cadaver tissue that you just talked about 
is in an effort to prevent future injuries in the same area. And, you know, some of our early results are bearing that out. And, and so hopefully as part of the research that you were talking about earlier, we can eventually be, you know, show that in a scientific fashion. Is it age specific or gender specific? Um, not exactly. And I probably couldn't tell you that it is. Uh, certainly we're seeing some trends um, towards patients above the age of about 35. In general, females tend to have, for lack of a medical term, flimsier labrums. So maybe there is some gender specificity to that. I tend to use augmentation more often in females than I do in males. Um, And specifically augmentation on folks who are above the age of 35 is probably at a higher incidence than it is on the younger patients. But you do see younger patients with hip. Oh, for sure. For sure. I mean, I see a fair amount of, um, you know, pathology, hip labral pathology in high school athletes even. And it's being recognized more and more. Like I said, in 2009, 2010, I, I, as you know, went around the city, this town, um, talking to a lot of primary care individuals about this pathology. And forget about primary care, a lot of orthopedic surgeons didn't recognize this as a pathology. Today, we're starting to see patients referred in for hip labral tears uh, that, in my opinion, otherwise would have been a misdiagnosis in years past. And outcomes, how can they get back to their normal activity? We have a tremendous amount of success stories. Um, Those are the ones that really are heartwarming. Um, Yeah, like I said, I mean, we've got high school athletes back on the field and on the basketball courts and volleyball courts. And so, yeah, absolutely. Okay, so in general, even if you're older, you can have the procedure and get back to your normal activity. Younger, you can play sports. Older, you can get back to running. Yeah, I mean, CrossFit. You know, of course, barring any arthritic changes in your hip, right? Um, as I mentioned earlier, there is a element of hip labral tears that's concomitant to hip, li- to hip arthritis. And so, you know, we as clinicians have to sort of weed out those patients that are starting to progress down a process of arthritic disease. And for those patients, just repairing their labrum is not going to change anything. Even if you do augments on them, they're eventually going to end up with hip arthritis. And so, you know, you certainly don't want to overpromise and underdeliver. Um, so there is a subset of the older p- patient population, and I don't want to put an age on what old is because every year I get older, that older population is changing. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, certainly as long as it doesn't have an arthritic component to it, certainly they can benefit from a hip label repair. Thank you for joining us, Dr. Bernie. Um, It's been quite interesting. We thank you for all your support um, with us and your excellent clinical outcomes. And we look forward to talking more on these topics. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for having me.